0: Hello there, welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr Neil Butchery, and it's the final episode of Season 2 already. It's really whizzed by, hasn't it? Today, we will complete my little eel trilogy by looking at eel conservation, its status as a critically endangered animal, and some of the things that's happened to it in its more recent history. Today, I talk to Andrew Kerr, Chairman of the Sustainable Eel Group, or SEG, a Europe-wide and conservation and science-led organisation working with partner bodies and individuals to accelerate the eel's recovery. The SEG website states that, key to this is a collaboration and equal representation of the scientific, conservation and commercial sectors. The SEG initiates and supports scientific research, conservation projects and organises stakeholders' commitment. Additionally, It provides a standard for a responsible eel sector, with traceability from source to market. His passion for eel developed by living near the River Severn, where he heard in his youth the stories of superabundance, and then in later life of their decline, and now their listing as a critically endangered species. I met up with Andrew Kerr in Gloucestershire in April 2021, during the elver migration up the River Severn. The pops and crackles, by the way, you can hear in the background are from the roaring fire that I was sat close to because it was so cold. We talked about the elver rewilding programme, how the SEG helps adult eels swim back to their spawning grounds, the terrible spate of elver trafficking that really threatened the eels' population, as well as the problems Brexit has thrown up. But I started off by asking Andrew about the ecological problems we humans have doled out to these fish. We have blocked its
1: natural pathway to migrate. Mm -hmm. And then we've taken away from it the habitat where it likes to change from being a seawater fish to a freshwater fish. Sure. That metamorphosis happens in wetlands. That's the best habitat. So we've smashed their natural world. No, no, we wanted the water for farming. We wanted the water for drinking. We wanted the water for waste. (laughs) We, we were greedy for water and, and we've really engineered the landscape beyond our comprehension because what we see, we think is reality, is, is how it should be. But just go back yeah. and find an unengineered uh, landscape. It's almost un- incomprehensible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing is the early generations of technology were wood and wood and water, it rots eels can wriggle round and through sure yes um, so it you know the the technology of cement and steel doors which is what these barriers are made of um just too efficient
0: but they are on the IUCN critically endangered red list so how is it possible for me to go out fishing and it for it to be completely legal and above board and uh not immoral absolutely um
1: you know That's a dilemma that uh, I've been there myself when I first really engaged with EEL. I think you have to look at the IUCN criteria. There are five criteria that they judge against. And um, the EEL only m- meets one of the five criteria. And that's oh, the okay. rate of decline. And we had this incredible decline, a slow decline over centuries, and then an accelerated decline 1980 2010, and this is measured by the glass eel index, right? Which is uh, literally counting eels in 50 locations across Europe, okay, to get a a metric. And it was that steep decline 15% a year for 30 years that led to the critically endangered listing,
0: right? Because I saw Banded around like statistics like ninety-five percent or ninety-eight percent. I think I read yeah, it at one I've point.
1: Read, I've read ninety-nine. Right, okay. Uh, ninety-nine point <laughs> five. Right. No, it's population is is ten percent ish of what it was. Mm-hmm. The glass eel index is counting the arrival only. That's used as a proxy indicator for the whole stock. So when I talk about populations, I'm talking about the glass eel index.
0: Yes, because I, I remember adult eel population. Seems to be much more stable. Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah. it is. Yeah, it's sort of more in the twenty to thirty percent category.
0: I mean, surely most freshwater animals and probably plants have all dipped similarly. Uh,
1: This is really true. Um, uh, WWF Planet Index said the most disrupted, destroyed habitat on the planet. Yeah, it's not your tropical rainforest; it's Europe's rivers. And right. wetlands. And they put a ninety-three percent figure in there as the impact of loss. Right, okay. And that matches eel. It's it really matches eel very yeah, closely. Yeah, yeah. From twenty eleven, that same glass eel index that went crash has stopped falling. And in fact, we have now got a few percent rise every year for ten years. And because it's now ten years of improvement. Mm-hmm. I'm saying to you today, just maybe we've turned the corner.
0: It certainly seems like it must be the work that you guys are doing, because in every other respect, it seems to be getting worse. There's more, there's more barriers being built. and It's getting more and more yeah. difficult.
1: Every country has had to write and develop and implement an EEL management plan. Mm-hmm. And they've done it to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. But without that fundamental policy change, um, then nothing would have happened what we've done is try and inject energy and leadership and communication. But the fundamental thing was to have a a regulation, a tool to go and drive forward with.
0: Are you finding that there's, as the years go on, more and more people are getting interested? Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, people, to begin with, you know, we go back to our dark, snake-like and of the night type Mm -hmm. feelings Mm -hmm. for Eel. And then people start to to explore it and they learn about its life cycle and its tenaciousness Mm -hmm. and its incredible journey of endurance the solution isn't in one person or one human discipline or one country's hands it's it's in all our hands um uh, yeah it, it is a total approach and People do get excited about eel when they start to get into it. And it crosses all these mad social divisions. And I think they're fairly charismatic, as fish go. Well, no, no, (laughs) I I think they really are.
0: Especially the elvers.
1: Yeah. yeah, I don't know why. They They really are, yeah. Well, And of course, they're always so hidden. So when you actually get a chance to see them, and you see the faces and them wriggling in a living way, the migration happens actually throughout the year. That's a common mistake it's happening all the time but you get in our country mm. a huge
0: peak in in welcoming spring so the seg work with eel fishermen to keep the population sustainable but what are they actually doing the practices have evolved in different countries
1: in, and in different ways so to keep it very simple, we'll just focus on our little concentration in the West Country. And here we have a net of prescribed dimensions, and it's a deliberately inefficient handheld net. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you don't catch them all. <laughs> the oh, okay. idea is to, is to make sure most get past. In the eel regulation, mm-hmm. if you are going to allow a glass eel fishery to operate, 60% of what they catch has to be used for restocking, Mm -hmm. i.e. catching and moving the fish upriver and into habitats where the eels aren't getting to. And then 40% can be used for human consumption. The British fishery, the UK fishery, because of these hand nets, these ancient artisanal method, catch the fish very, very sensitively. So very, very, very low mortality in the catch and handling process. Therefore, if you are a German, shall we say, mm-hmm. and they've been buying eel from the River Severn since 1908, okay, because that's how long ago their elver run started to fail. And they like our eels because... They are the best quality. They have the greatest chance of surviving in their rivers and wetlands and lakes.
0: I see. Okay,
1: yeah. Now we come to the, the business of actually consumption. You can eat a completely wild eel, mm-hmm. and nobody says you can't, but if you eat a big grown-up silver eel that's 25 years old, mm-hmm. about to make its silvering journey back to the sea, yeah, you know, and it's carrying the two or the three million eggs in it... Mm-hmm you're not really eating one fish at that point. Sure. (laughs) You're eating something that represents many, many, many fish, Mm -hmm. Uh, hundreds of thousands of fish when you eat it at that life stage. But if you eat it at the glass eel life stage when it's just arrived and 1.3 billion of them Mm -hmm. arrive, you you can really take quite a a harvest at that point and not damage uh, the eel population. Take this 1.3 billion. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the work of SEG and the standard and getting the fisheries all involved in meeting the standard, and then uh, 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 we're able to actually count how many eels there are and where they're caught. Now, we've worked out that of the 1.3 billion that typically arrive, 3% are being used in restocking at the moment. 4% is used in the farms to grow eels on, Mm -hmm. to meet the demand of Europe, about 6,000, 7,000 tonnes a year. And then, this is the horror story, 20 to 25% Mm -hmm. was being illegally trafficked
0: to Asia.
1: So one of our first missions as SEG Mm -hmm. was to try and stop this illegal trade going on because it was taking far too larger percent Mm -hmm. of this very precious resource away. Do you know where those... Elvers are going been able to 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 investigate and work with organisations like Traffic, and from there we've given presentations in the Hague to the international bodies that come together to do customs, to do enforcement, mm-hmm. and Europol and then Interpol, and we've been able to work with them to actually put an end to this trade, and we're expecting public announcements not too far away mm-hmm. showing the scale of, of 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 that impact. I think I said earlier that 75% of the glass eels arrived in the Bay of Biscay. That's something like a billion of the 1.3 billion. Okay. And uh, the great trafficking volume the fish have been caught there.
0: Ah, okay. There's
1: been a trickle mm-hmm. from the Severn and the I parrot, see. but it's not been, you know, the great place for it. To, to have happened there has been a successful prosecution of um, a malaysian gentleman mm-hmm. last january a year back and there was evidence that over a two or three year period 20 plus million had gone to asia through his hands but most of wow. those were caught in france and spain
0: right okay how does one um traffic elvers it seems like an impossible thing to do
1: <laughs> so when it became illegal and customs started to poke around a little bit, mm-hmm. the first thing the traffickers did was to disguise the fish by labeling it wrongly. Now that worked for a bit. Sure. And then uh that started to be rumbled. And then they started to put the eels in layers. And then on the top layer, they'd put illegal fish. And bar the consignment. Oh, with, okay. With, with. So you've got cat and mouse going on. Mm-hmm. And then the next level of cat and mouse was to start to fly them from different airports. So to begin with, it was always the airports nearest where they were caught. Mm-hmm. And then gradually <laughs> you, you had them uh, being driven by vehicles to a much further away airport, maybe in another country. Then the cat and mouse game moves to something that's bizarre, so bizarre it's ridiculous. You can put about 30 kilos of eels in a thirty kilo suitcase, your hand luggage suitcase, and you right. can take it, put it on your airplane as you board into the hold. Collect <laughs> it at the other end. Wow, uh, thirty kilos of eel is a hundred thousand glass eels. Now the fisherman probably got paid, say ten pence for. Okay, landed in
0: Hong Kong.
1: Mm-hmm. Each one probably worth a pound. Mm-hmm. So that suitcase is now a hundred thousand pounds landed. In Hong Kong. Okay. Grown on for a year in one of the 900 eel farms. Mm -hmm. It's worth £10. So you've turned 10 pence into £10. That's not a
0: bad return. In a year. Wow.
1: And what happened, and we know, I know from attending wildlife crime conferences, that the same people who do drugs and guns and humans got into eel in a big way because the profits were super great. And then if you, the risks of being caught were pretty minimal. And then even if you were caught, Mm -hmm. you were pretty, (laughs) pretty safe. And then the eel stations started to to have to be hidden because they were being raided. So that they would then take out mini industrial units, put them into barns, all sorts of mini eel stations would grow up. And they got raided and closed down. Then they started to open up eel stations in Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. and Germany and Switzerland and Italy and Greece. The vehicles would then drive the eels from the (laughs) riverbank 12, 24 hours. They'd then rest in these secret pop-up eel stations, Uh literally ones you could collapse. (laughs) Okay. And um, then they'd be put on the plane and uh, an Asian, often a Chinese person, would report to be on holiday, but actually they'd come to the pop-up eel station, collect their hand luggage onto the plane. Oh right, of course, back-handed. yeah.
0: Just need a tourist visa, yeah. and you're fine. And that was a hundred tons worth. Hundred tons? I can't even. It's just an unimaginable number, isn't it?
1: Hundred million fish. Wowzers! So the sales value of that, once grown on, is something in the order of two and a half, three billion. Mm. So hence. The biggest wildlife crime on the planet. Hence, Europe's own ivory. The idea that sure. we yeah yeah here in the first
0: world yeah, of course the so called civilized world. No no no,
1: wildlife crime happens over
0: there. Because I was trying to think of an, an analogy. I was thinking, well, there's kind of bush meat and things like that. Those kind of wildlife crimes, but it's not on a big enough scale. I was trying to think of something. It is ivory, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: okay. I think I need to tell um a bit of a story now about how it's all. Evolved. Um, okay, it's recent stories. The technology of growing an eel on in a farm is is really relatively new. It was sort of perfected and 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 got better and better and more efficiently done in the second half of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. and, and very much the last twenty five years of it.
0: Because we need the farms, do Because we can't actually breed. Yes, So when we talk about eel farms, we're not raising them from eggs.
1: No, you're absolutely right. We, humans are yet to develop a technology of breeding in, mm-hmm. in captivity. You can do it, but not economically viably. I see. And they've been trying to break this one for decades and can't okay. find the answer. <laughs> so you have to grow on a glass eel in a farm. And it takes a year or two to to reach a size to harvest. But if you've grown it on in a farm from the four percent of what's arrived Mm -hmm. (laughs) you've got quite a lot of food (laughs) and not a lot of uh, and very small environmental impact Mm -hmm. on the species Mm -hmm. so you know we're happy with that sort of level of of capture what we weren't happy with was a quarter of the entire arrival being shipped off at huge profit to asia yeah. and let me just stay with the story of of what happened so this technology developed and with it also came jet transport to asia and you could fly an eel in a container
0: okay
1: or oh, a million eels in a container uh of a, of a, of an airplane and in 24 hours it could be in a pond in in hong kong or china and an eel can withstand that as long as you pack it in, in 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 the correct way yeah it can take such a journey and um, it led to uh, an explosion in scale mm-hmm. of eel farming so by 2015 85 mm-hmm. percent of the world's eel aquaculture mm-hmm. was from 900 farms in the provinces behind hong kong and to feed that mm-hmm. Two hundred and forty-five thousand tons of production. Europe from earlier, six or seven thousand tons a year. Yeah. China, two hundred and forty thousand <laughs> tons a year. They had to get glass eels from elsewhere. Their local eel, japonica, couldn't support that scale. No. no. And they came to Europe, and they also came to North America for yeah. for the American eel, the Strata eel. Um, and they built this 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 great industry up, and um. That was fine. Queen's Award for Export was made <laughs> in Gloucester for, yeah, okay. for the trade. It was all legitimate. Um, but then, by the time we get to about two thousand, eel numbers are starting to wobble and still going up and down. But the the graph is down, up and down. But yeah, the still basic down. trend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the eel scientists, um, particularly my colleague Willem Decker, who created this glass eel index. Um, started to really shake, (laughs) ring the bell. And the bell uh, resulted in the eel regulation. And then with the eel regulation came the second theme of it, which was to list eel Mm -hmm. and cites, the control and trade of endangered species. doesn't say no trade, unless you listed it at the highest category, Uh but the second category seeks to control trade right so the idea was that you'd stop the trade to asia mm-hmm. to save the species i see europe could absorb four percent of the species in yeah it's not the issue and yes that's, yeah that's controlled mm-hmm. anyway what happens is the regulation goes through the CITES two-year transition period goes in and the trade carries on and nobody's looking for it it okay. just runs on and um when we got seg going and um, we created the standard, we we knew there was some illegal trade, but we had no sense of the scale of production in Asia. We had no sense of, of, of what was happening. Mm-hmm. And then it gradually dawned on us. And I remember a meeting at the Zoological Society in London in 2015 when we had traffic there. And traffic said, we think 20 tons is going to Asia each year. That's about 70 million fish and the sector because seg is one third commercial one third science one third conservation Mm -hmm. fell off their chairs right that's more than we're using in our farms yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and ever since then this was this had to be sorted out yeah this was just not okay Uh, the whole reinvention of the sector that's taken all this time Mm -hmm. was on the basis that that it's controlled and regulated Mm -hmm. and we don't take more than EEL can naturally give us. So um, off we went and, and we trips to, to, to Hong Kong and Asia and Philippines and mm-hmm. fact finding missions, visits to libraries in Beijing to try and find the data. Uh, yeah, it, it's been a bit of, 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 of cloak and dagger in all this. Then the enforcement agencies, particularly after our briefing uh, to them in the Hague, started mm-hmm. to get going and nothing like success to breed more effort to do more. Mm-hmm. And so the last four years, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, over 100 people a year have been arrested.
0: Wow, because when you talk about, uh, I hear about wildlife crime, it's just extremely difficult to and pin so down anybody. So that's amazing.
1: Amazing, yeah. And, and the longest prison sentences is, is five years. Okay. Um, lots of middle-ranking people. You talk about trafficking kingpins. pins who are the ones really manipulating it with the mm-hmm. big profits. But the the middle-ranking people, particularly at the European end and the lower-ranking people, yeah, they have um, lost their cars, they've lost their houses, uh, and some have gone to prison because mm-hmm. you're not allowed to keep the profit from illegal activity. Okay. So you may not be fined a huge amount, but the, for- the enforcement agencies take away your profit. Yeah, yeah. So you suffer. Sure. And... Um, right. Yeah. And the lesson has got through, you know, people know that this is for real mm-hmm. and you can't just say it's only eel or it's only wildlife and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because the citizens of the world are saying, no, mate, it does matter.
0: So the eel is a salmon, but backwards. Adult salmon swim up the river to spawn. Adult eels go down and then they spawn in the sea. So we've heard a lot about giving Elvers a helping hand up, but what's SEG doing for the ones swimming down? Because they're going to meet the same barriers and, yeah. and hydroelectric yeah. dams and what, yes. whatever else. So that must be just as key. Because there's no point getting the glass eels up if you can't get no. them as adults back.
1: No, no, this is this is such a shame because, you know, we want green, sustainable energy. We want food, so we want water on the far- on the farmland to, to create the food but both those two things moving water around and creating energy from water spinning turbine blades are used mm-hmm. and you only really, you know, can see that a long thin eel shape <laughs> and a turbine blade just don't match no no there are twenty five thousand hydropower stations i believe in europe. And um, uh, they do an incredible amount of damage right at the point when your silver eel, your big female, is trying to make that return journey. And they chop them and they right. kill them. Vast numbers. And if you look at our website, you can see incredible photographs of mutilated eels.
0: Yeah, and some of these eels live a long time as well, don't they? They can get into the 70s and 80s. Yeah.
1: They're a long-lived species by fish standards, but they're so versatile. So, I mean, if you're a glass eel and you've landed by accident in Portugal and you're in a lagoon, you'll turn around in about 30 months. You won't stop feeding. There's lots of food. It's warm water. Mm -hmm. So you don't hibernate in the winter. And you guzzle until you're ready to make the return journey. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 29 months. And they're mostly male because on the coastline, the bigger eels, the females tend to be north and uh, further up the river systems now you contrast that with shall we say a swedish female eel mm-hmm. and she she's she's going to be 25 30 35 sometimes 40 and 50 years and and there's even a claim of 100 years for for one but they're okay. long lived yeah and uh, they hibernate all winter it's too cold mm-hmm. eels don't like cold water they're a tropical species and they literally back into a hole and adopt hibernation for seven eight months oh even. really okay yeah. so then they feed the first month just to catch up with the weight they've lost mm-hmm. over the winter then they get another couple of months of feeding in and <laughs> then it's back to hibernation again so they really do take a long time to grow so this means if you're trying to write the eel regulation mm-hmm. you can't be prescriptive you had to let countries understand the issue and make their own plans Mm -hmm. according to their own geography
0: there's another uh, threat to the eel industry right now and that's brexit
1: the last so many years 10 to 15 million glass eels have been caught on the seven and the parrot and sent primarily for Mm -hmm. restocking Mm -hmm. 60 70 80 percent have gone for restocking the rivers and wetlands of Europe, Mm -hmm. where their migration has failed. Now, that trade would have continued, but because Brexit has happened, Mm -hmm. the CITES convention, the controlling trade of endangered species, you have uh, this concept with CITES as the sending nation Mm -hmm. needs to write a non-detriment finding for the species, Mm -hmm. a scientific non-detriment finding for the species to enable the trade to happen. okay, And the receiving country's CITES authority, mm-hmm. needs to agree that it is non-detriment.
0: Okay, well, that sounds fair enough. No, no. one's taking too much and everyone's agreeing that that's exactly. the right amount. That's, that's so fine. during
1: 2020, the UK, I think, wrote three broadly similar non-detriment findings mm-hmm. and they were rejected. And the final one uh, meeting was in December, and the UK government didn't get told till after Christmas that it was rejected. And suddenly, three, five days later, mm-hmm. January the 1st arrives. Yeah. And trade is not possible. And what I found so extraordinary is the science didn't change overnight. And you see politics creeping into to an issue. And SEG works across all boundaries. Mm-hmm. We don't take political sides. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. So we're then in a pickle. We have 300 licensed fishermen. Mm-hmm. We have no market. The fishermen want to carry on their tradition. They've been doing it for hundreds of years, thousands of
0: years. And there's no market. No, because no one's eating them anymore. No. So there's no intel. There's there's no, no, there's, is there any UK? No eel farms, eel farms, in, farms UK, in England no, or, or no, Wales no. nearby?
1: No? Well, there's Loch Ness in Northern Ireland, but I'm not going to go into that one because that's even more Brexit heavy with the customs union. But yeah. at the moment, there is no trade. There are no contracts. So what we as SEG decided was there needed to be some leadership for those fishermen because they have nowhere to take their eels Mm -hmm. now in the uk we've got lots of fresh water Mm -hmm. which doesn't have much eel population in it and so we've asked that there should be a uk Mm -hmm. rewilding restocking right program and we still haven't got the permission to do that but what we have got is the permission to move eels and assist their migration over the barriers. Mm-hmm. So we very hastily organized a volunteer mm-hmm. um, rewilding program. And uh, what you witnessed yesterday was us go through the first million barrier. Uh, I think this morning's figure was nearly 1.4 million we'd reached in this movement, this assisted migration. Mm-hmm. And I'm now hoping we can double that. Um, but who knows? It's all about the river. The moon, the tides, the rain, and whether we can keep the volunteer fishermen enthusiasm high to go out and get cold and lose their sleep.
0: That's it, because I was going to say, I mean, everyone seems to be, well, I say everyone, Dave, <laughs> when I spoke to Dave, uh, but it seemed fairly representative. You know, is a bit despondent, obviously, but can see that no, this is useful because even though it's not going to really make any money out of it this year, it's the future of yeah. the The eel, and it's very important culturally, historically. However, you can only ask for people's goodwill for so long. So, is this going to be, is this likely to be a a one off, a a blip, Mm. or people manage to wade through the red tape and sort this problem out?
1: There is lots of red tape, which I love to call treacle. Um, Mm. We're trying to wade through the treacle. Mm -hmm. It's very exhausting. But I think your listeners should be thinking about this statement because that graph is starting to go up. And because of all this collaboration that's producing bearing fruit, for a, want of a better word, the elver fisherman in the UK is now more endangered than the elver.
0: Well, how many was there this year? Maybe a hundred?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are 300 licenses oh, three, a year okay. ago. Oh, right. This okay. year, uh, roughly 200 on the seven, 100 on the parrot, mm-hmm. and that's down from 500 Five-ish, seven-ish years ago right so they're dropping and the parrot this year had about 20 i think mm-hmm. and the seven about 100 so yes but why would you buy a license for 85 pounds if you can't do anything with your license well indeed so yeah the elver fishermen and the two elver fisher ladies mm-hmm. are more endangered than the elver itself
0: A big thanks there to Andrew Kerr of the Sustainable Eel Group. I'm so glad he found time to have a chat with me during what was a very busy week for him and the SEG. I hope his enthusiasm has left you enthused about eels and that their conservation is important to us ecologically, but also culturally, and that it is viable and achievable. I really believe that, at least once the Brexit issue has been sorted out, that the conservation of the European eel can be a success. It should work perfectly. Elver fishermen like Elver Dave help the migrating elvers upriver while selling a proportion of the catch to various eel farms dotted about Europe and Asia. But most of them get rewilded. Yes, there is trafficking, but it seems to be on the way, not least for now. The important thing for us, especially for those of us who eat eel, is that we make sure we are eating eels that have been reared sustainably in farms and not taken from the wild. I have left all sorts of links in the show notes if you want more information about all the good work the SCG does. And so we come to the end of the episode and the season. Thanks to everyone who've taken part. Sam Bilton, Christopher Monk, Elva Dave Smith, John Wyatt Greenlee and of course Andrew Kerr. I'll be back later in the year with a fresh batch of six new episodes. I'm not quite sure how long that will take. I've got a book deadline coming up. So I have to focus on that for a little bit, but I will be blogging, so make sure you visit the blogs, britishfoodhistory.com and neilcooksgrigson.com. One thing I will be doing, though, is the postbag stroke right to reply episode. So if you have any questions, queries, or anything to add about today's episode, or any other episode, please contact me via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com, or on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram at doctor, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore buttery. Maybe you have an idea for a future episode, or you just have a general food history question. If so, please let me know. Another thing I will be doing is producing some extra content for all of my subscribers. There will be some extra blog posts and some extra mini podcast episodes coming up in the next few weeks. To keep tabs on what I'm adding, go to the Easter egg section at britishfoodhistory.com. And if you want to get a subscription, it's just £3 a month. Every penny I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me to a virtual coffee or a virtual pint. Just go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab on the website. But before I go, the biggest thank you, of course, goes to you for listening and downloading, for interacting on social media and asking me questions. I wouldn't be doing any of this. If no one was listening, I really, really do appreciate it. And until next time, cheerio!